Hi everyone and welcome to this special episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. My name is Niels Kubis. Today's episode is special in two ways. First, this episode is a very special one because it's not one of the typical interviews you are used to hearing on this podcast feed. In mid-June, the fifth forum of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network took place. It was the first time in a purely virtual format, and to be honest, I was concerned that by going virtual, we might lose the special sauce that made previous forums feel more like a festival-slash-friend reunion rather than an academic conference. Thanks to the amazing support by Global Integrity, I'm happy to say that these concerns were not warranted and that the forum was a big success. One event on the program was a roundtable discussion with leading corruption scholars and practitioners. We decided to air a shorter edited version as a kickback episode. The panel dealt with the question, how can academia and policy communicate anti-corruption better? The roundtable includes input from three panelists and questions from the audience. We cut the names of those from the audience who asked questions to preserve their privacy. Our great panelists were Heather Marquette, who is a professor of development politics at the University of Birmingham, Leslie Holmes, who is a professor emeritus of political science at the University of Melbourne, and Jonathan Cushing, who leads the Global Health Program at Transparency International. The roundtable was moderated by our great colleague Johannes Ton from Global Integrity. The second reason why it's a special episode is that it's the last one before the summer break. We will use the next two months to record new episodes and come up with other ideas to improve the podcast. So if you have suggestions, ideas, please reach out to us either on Twitter, our handle there is at kickbackgap, or via email. The best way to do so is by sending an email to info at icrnetwork.org. Before we jump into the roundtable discussion, we'd like to thank the whole team of Global Integrity again for their support in organizing this year's ICRN Forum and the great team on the sides of ICRN. Good morning, everyone. Uh, pleasure to see everyone join us this morning on this third day of the ICRN conference. And in particular for this public event, for this roundtable that we're hosting to explore how academia, academics, researchers can perhaps better communicate with practitioners, policymakers, implementers in order to arrive at better anti-corruption results. My name is Johannes Ton. I lead Global Integrity's work on corruption and anti-corruption. And in this particular instance, I co-lead the Global Integrity Anti-Corruption Evidence Program, which is funded by FCDO and which at its core is a program that engages with particularly with specifically with this topic that we're discussing today, which is how can we generate actionable anti-corruption evidence for use in designing and then implementing effective anti-corruption measures. So I am very much vested in this question of how academics and how research can affect policymakers and practitioners. And I'm very pleased to have three distinguished panelists with us this morning. Leslie Holmes from the University of Melbourne, Heather Marquette from the University of Birmingham, and Jonathan Cushing, who leads the uh, Transparency International Health Initiative. I'll introduce the panelists in, in a minute, just to say that whenever you have people of this caliber 
on your panel, I could probably go on and read an entire page of uh, the different accolades that they have accomplished and, and achievements and successes they've had had. But I'll, I'll keep this to just a few sentences in order to not take away too much time. So Leslie Holmes is Professor Emeritus at the University of Melbourne, and he's teaching advanced courses on anti-corruption in different schools around the world. Um, his corruption research has focused primarily on communist and post-communist systems and on corruption in the police. He's edited at least seven books, authored and edited at least seven books, and he's been published in 19 languages, which I find quite fascinating. Heather Marquette is a professor of development politics at Birmingham University, and she's currently seconded part-time to FCEO as a senior research fellow. That is perhaps one of the hats that she'll wear and that will be very informative for our discussion as well, because there's lots of different experience that she brings navigating these two positions that professor on the one hand, on the other hand, being, being uh, embedded with FCDO to a certain extent. She has done research on corruption and anti-corruption interventions, development politics, aid, and importantly, serious organized crime. She is a major and eminent voice in this whole discussion around thinking and working, thinking and working politically. So very pleased to have Heather with us this morning. Thank you. And then last but not least, we have Jonathan Cushing, who leads the Global Health Program at Transparency International, aimed at curbing corruption and improving transparency in the health sector globally. His background is very much in public health, and he has extensive experience in working in and with governments around the world, civil society organizations, and the private sector on health system strengthening, and also on improving the quality of health care. So Jonathan brings a practitioner perspective that transcends the civil society and government role. Before I kick off our, our discussion, our roundtable today, I want to talk a little bit about the objective and format of this roundtable, and then provide a few words on framing this discussion at a high level of abstraction for us to all get situated. The objective of our roundtable today is to explore how researchers and practitioners can communicate in more effective ways to achieve better anti-corruption results. Which means that at the end of these 90 minutes in front of us, I would love if we would all come out and have an overview about some of the perspectives, perhaps the range of perspectives of what the challenges are in academics communicating with practitioners, but also what the proposed solutions and approaches to solutions are that we can think of, that we have thought of, and that we could explore further. The key question that we're trying to explore is why does it matter that researchers communicate in more effective ways with practitioners? Understanding that why is a, is a key component of us understanding the how. And that is something that we hopefully get to in the discussion in order to understand what prevents that or what, what is that disconnect between academics and, and uh, policymakers communicating in effective ways. In order to achieve this objective, we opted to experiment a bit and go away from a traditional panel discussion in which we would have you know, 20 minute interventions or 30 minute interventions by each panelist, perhaps with PowerPoint presentations, and instead opted to make this or try to make this a true roundtable, which means that in this particular case, we'll, we'll kick off with, the, with reflections by our panelists, short reflections, five minutes each perhaps, um, and then we'll turn it over to the audience and we'd love to hear from you and allow you, give you the floor and allow to either build on what our speakers have been saying, uh, build on their reflections, raise some questions or explore additional angles and bring in additional perspectives that you might have. 
all this, obviously, this participatory model of, of trying to replicate what in the real world would be a true roundtable in order to not just benefit from the wisdom of these three speakers, but to indeed open it up and include as many perspectives as possible. So that at the end of this uh, roundtable, we would indeed arrive at a, at a comprehensive set of insights um, bringing together what we all think and what you all think. The, there are two, I think we, we thought about this roundtable having two segments. One is indeed starting with the, uh, with the challenges that we see when it comes to academics and practitioners communicating in effective ways. And then after about half an hour, we switch mode and we turn over to, to solutions and approaches to solutions. So I think we'll, we'll just run this experiment and see how it goes. Before I now turn this over to Leslie, Heather and Jonathan for their first reflections on the question at hand, let me just provide a little bit of high level framing of where this discussion sits and why it matters. The question of whether and how evidence can inform policymaking or practitioners is a long-standing question that is not specific to the anti-corruption space itself. This is a question that arises in almost all disciplines and uh, you know, whether it is other social, science, uh, social sciences, economics, or even law, whether it is um, other sciences, take COVID as an example. There's a huge question that we all grapple with at all times, to what extent, to what degree, science and insights from science can and should inform policymaking and how that actually works. And a subset of that question is indeed how academics, how researchers can best communicate with policymakers and practitioners. There are two general observations or hypotheses in this space. One is that academics themselves fall short of, of communicating well with policymakers and practitioners, and that it is either the fault of academics or researchers or the fault of policymakers to, to connect well on these issues and understand where the, other where the other person comes from in order to communicate well between them. The other hypothesis is that, that we're misguided in our idea that it is indeed research and insights emanating from research that can or should inform what policymakers do and that there is a disconnect between the ability of policymakers and practitioners to make sense of academic research and insights in the first place. And that somehow this, this idea that technical knowledge uh, is larger and more important uh, than, than political knowledge, political contingencies, that that is something that we have misunderstood. And the discussion around thinking and working politically precisely drives at the second question, uh, trying to understand what is the extent to which we should take technical knowledge and insights that emanate from research as a starting point and how do we need to understand this starting point in the context of political decisions and political constraints that practitioners and, and policymakers face at all times? So, so that's, a general, that's a general observation about the space. That's not specific to anti-corruption. But when it comes to anti-corruption more specifically, Mark Pyman in 2017 formulated this by now famous blog in which he was frustrated and, and, and vented and said, he, he's so disappointed by anti-corruption researchers specifically admiring the problem, but not coming forward with great solutions and advice on how to really help practitioners move forward. I, I would be remiss to say that, while on the one hand, that is a true observation, that there is lots of diagnostics out there, ways of categorizing and, and diving into corruption as an issue, not translating those into, into meaningful, actionable insights, that on the one hand, that is true, but on the other hand, there are in recent years a number of programs uh, that have tried to precisely tackle this issue. And it's not, the, not just the GIA's program of which I'm part of. It is very much other programs just as well 
for example, the targeting natural resource corruption program funded by USAID and done with WWF, U4 for a long time has tried to bridge the space between researchers and practitioners. So there are different efforts that try in the anti-corruption space specifically to make that bridge. But with, with that general framing, I don't want to speak more at this point in time and really turn it over to our, to our panelists. And I would invite Leslie to perhaps start us off with a few thoughts of his on how we can make sense of this question, whether and how practitioner uh, academics can communicate in effective, perhaps more effective ways, ways with practitioners. Leslie, over to you. Thanks, Johannes. Um, and thank you, organizers, for inviting me, uh, even though it's the middle of the night, yeah, almost on a Friday night. And normally I would be enjoying a whiskey at this stage, but I didn't dare tonight. And I'd like to thank the people behind the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network, particularly with your emphasis on interdisciplinary. Obviously, corruption is very transboundary. I mean, anthropologists, criminologists, economists, political scientists, sociologists, statisticians and others have all got something to contribute. In terms of exploring the challenge, Heather and I, we discovered that we were maybe, <laughs> I mean, being facetious that we were two great minds thinking alike, but at least two minds thinking alike, because um, in a pre-run of this, uh, we, did, we found that she and I both had exactly the same starting point. And I won't say what that was, because um, Heather's going to tell you about that. Anyway, fortunately, I thought of two others. The first, that the two sides have to appreciate the need for both practical hands-on uh, practical hands-on work and deep theorising, and all too often both sides think that their respective dimension is really the important one, and there is no one important one. This is also trans, it's also a need to be cut across both. Neither works well without the other. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. Johannes mentioned that um, I work on police corruption and uh, a little while ago I did surveys of the general public, uh, business people and in Russia and Bulgaria also of police officers themselves. And one of the questions in the survey was, what do you think were the, uh, are the main causes of police corruption? And it was one of these ones, a multi-choice questionnaire that could pick up to 15 but also add anything that I hadn't thought of. And uh, just to give you the figures, the number one cause, according to the general public, in three of the four countries I studied was greed. And in for the business people, it was number two or three in all four. For the police, it was number three in Bulgaria and number five in Russia. Now, that's fine. Greed, as one explanation, is fine until you start asking two questions. One why are some people greedier than others? And two, what is what is causing that greed? And that's when I'll, I'll come back to that when looking at the uh, possible solutions, because that to me is a prime example of where so-called common sense, which uh, according to Voltaire and, and um, uh, Mark Twain, Mark Twain, as, as both of them said, uh, common sense ain't that common. So one of the things that uh, academics can bring is looking at that from a theoretical perspective. Another thing academics can bring is comparison. In other words, again, to use a common phrase, you don't need to keep reinventing the wheel. It could be that a country 
has already tried a policy that some practitioners are considering. And uh, your experience as an academic analysing this comparatively with, say, well, country X has tried that, and then you have a to and froing, yeah, but their culture's different, et cetera, et cetera. Another factor identified was the perceived significance of threats. Uh, those of you who are Latin Americanists will know the, or may know the expression plata or plomo, silver or lead, which is a phrase used by organised crime uh, to threaten police officers in many Latin countries, Latin American countries. Uh, again, what's behind that? Why are these threats so much more common in some countries than in others? Uh, you could explain grounded theory if they're saying, we've got all these theories and none of them works. You could explain what grounded theory is and let's say, let's do some practical work together and then develop a theory which will then help both yourselves and others looking at this. My second point, um, and I'm looking at the another minute, is that academics need a better appreciation of the important role they can play in training future practitioners. I thought this was a particularly relevant point, knowing that most of this, uh, this network that you're in is junior academics, younger academics. There are now many masters and undergraduate courses around the world in corruption, anti-corruption, integrity studies, and so on. Sussex University, the Hurdy School of Governments uh, in Berlin, uh, the International Anti-Corruption Academy in Vienna, uh, the Graduate School of Social Research in Warsaw for Lona, and so on. There's, I, I had to produce a list for Oxford University Press back in 2015, and I stopped when I got to 65 of these courses. And the bottom line is that academics do, in their teaching, as well as their interaction with the practitioners, they have to think some of these people I'm teaching are themselves going to be practitioners, and I want to treat, teach them practical aspects of corruption and how to merge that with the deep theory. I'll leave it at that. I think that's my five minutes, but I will be addressing both of those uh, later in this session. Great. Thank you. Very much appreciated, Leslie, those two points. For now, I'll turn it over to Heather. Heather. Great. Thank you very much, uh, Johannes. And thanks, uh, thanks, Leslie. The first of my two challenges here, um, I've kind of called in my notes, what's your offer? When I first joined what was then DFID as, a, as an academic secondment, so a senior, like a senior advisor position within the organization, I heard this, this phrase a lot. And it, it really actually, I mean, at first I thought it was a little bit irritating, but then I thought actually it makes a really important point. I think one of the biggest frustrations as an academic working on corruption and anti-corruption can be that we know just how important our research is and how important it is for policymakers to know about it and to do something differently as a result. But one of the biggest frustrations as a policymaker working on corruption and anti-corruption can be that there is just so much research out there coming in from all over the world, and it's very hard to know what to pay attention to, even if you had unlimited time to spend reading and engaging uh, with research, which, which no one does, not even academics. This is even more frustrating when there are debates and contradictions between what different people are saying uh, in the research as well, in terms of trying to navigate and figure out uh, whose way is best particularly when academics, we have a tendency to think that our way is best or the only way to think about things as well. For academics, sometimes we assume that everyone can see what's obvious to us when we publish our research findings. 
for that to happen, we have to assume that everybody has read exactly the same stuff, that we've all been part of the same meetings, that we know the same people or so on. And this means that we don't often spell out exactly why our research is important because it's so blatantly obvious why it's important as well. We also, I think, as academics, and academia is a very weird business sometimes, but we don't always understand or even accept that none of us are actually all that special. There's an awful lot of us out there. Um, and this is another reason why it's necessary to make crystal clear why our research is important. Another frustration for policymakers too, linked to this, is that when they need information, when they need advice from researchers, academics are often slow to respond um, and can't fit in a meeting um, until some point in the future. And I'm kind of looking at Sky here, who I own email to as an example. So <laughs> I'll, I'll email you later, Sky. And that's one of the things that makes academics really quite different often from think tanks, uh, is that think tank researchers don't have things usually like teaching, PhD supervision meetings, curriculum meetings, admissions, all of the things that go with being an academic. So academics produce often the same amount of research, but they're doing it alongside all of the teaching and all of the service commitments as well. It also means that there are hard things in our diaries that can't change no matter how big the political or policy crisis out there in the world is or how urgent somebody senior needs that advice um, because we don't have control over sort of two thirds of our diary basically. And this was one of the biggest challenges for me when I first started out my secondment with DFID, now FCDO, is that they would send, they would send me an email saying, could you let me know X about the evidence on, on this. And I would say yes, but I meant yes in academic time. And they meant by this afternoon because the minister has asked for something like this. And we learned over time to be really clear. So when you ask, you say, I need this by tomorrow at three or else it's not useful anymore. Uh, and then I knew and I could actually answer yes or no honestly as well. It still remains a challenge over four years on, but that is one of the biggest problems. The second challenge that I have, I've called Know Your Politics. I don't think I'm being immodest if I say that I had a pretty good handle on how politics impacted policy in my area before I started my secondment. Um, I'm a founding member of the Thinking and Working Politically Community of Practice, as Johanna said. I was the director of the Governance and Social Development Resource Center, the GSDRC, which provides knowledge management for policymakers for 20 years. I, you know, I've been funded by DFAT, by DFAT and the EU and so on. Um, and my own research looks at policy and political economy analysis and so on. So when I started in, in DFID, I, I was in a pretty good position, I thought, to really understand it. And about six weeks in, I was talking to a senior civil servant that many of us may know, who said, so how many things that you thought you knew when you started, you realize you didn't know now? And we had a good laugh because almost everything um, that I thought how things worked isn't really how it works. And even people who are well-connected with policymakers and are trusted, who think they really understand the underlying political context in which policymakers work, often fall far short of really understanding the impact that politics has on the room for maneuver for policymakers to take on board what are often very tough research findings from a political perspective in a field that is hugely, highly political. So corruption is you know, one of the biggest hot potatoes out there. So what seems obvious to us, what, what we may even understand may be somewhat challenging to take on board from a political perspective can actually be in reality, hugely challenging to implement in real life because of political factors, but also because of technical factors that academics rarely have a real line of sight on. 
sometimes we also believe that it's not our job as researchers to worry about that, either because we're concerned about our independence, which is a genuine concern for academics engaging regularly with policymakers, or because we just think our research is so important that policymakers need to take on board the implications and it's their problem and they basically need to, to work that out. And I've seen this again and again when I've seen senior academics giving presentations to policymakers where they kind of come in with what is actually a huge bombshell, drop the mic and then walk away without offering any practical sort of steps forward as well. And at the end of the day, if we want people to use our research, we have to understand the actual change process needed to take up those research findings. Um, and often this needs uh, much more humility about ourselves and where we fit within this ecosystem than is often the case. Just one final thought. I think what's what's meant by the politics often really depends, well, no, it always depends on the type of organization. So the World Bank isn't UNODC, which isn't FCDO, which isn't the State Department and so on. So if you're working with multiple policymakers, you have to understand the politics of that policy environment for every single one of those. And it's really different. And that is a big ask. And ultimately, there actually is no such thing as a policymaker in reality. There are different types of people working in different policy environments with different roles. And each of those will have different scope to do things differently. But somehow, I think as academics, we assume they all have exactly the same power to bring about dramatic change um, that our research findings tell them is necessary. Um, and that's rarely the actual case. So on that, I think I'll leave that there and hand back to you. Great. Well, thank you so much. That's that's hugely insightful. I appreciate that. Um, much to unpack further, uh, but we'll leave all those points that you've mentioned for now and move into how to approach solutions or, or how to think about solutions to, to addressing these issues in our second segment. I'll turn it over to John for, for your thoughts and reflections on what the problem is. What is the challenge between academics and practitioners communicating well? Thanks, Johannes. Um, and yeah, well, as you said, Johannes, I'd like to talk about solutions, first of all, is my first point. Um, and I think that's the kind of the main one from the practitioner side is that we're often looking for solutions. Leslie and Heather have both picked up on the time issue. And I think it's a common thread running through this. There's 24 hours in a day. We would really like to read things. I would like to read things. But the reality is we don't have time. There's so much information out there. And research needs to be presented in an easy, digestible manner which, which practitioners, and I, I say that kind of inverted commas, can take on board, can understand, and you've got to realize you're competing in a crowded space. I think to make it successful, what, we, what, what I'm often looking for is research that helps understand um, and either gives me an idea as to what the solution could be or puts forward solutions. We often know what the problem is. I don't particularly want deep theoretical research quite a lot of the time. I want to be guided towards a solution. And on that, I think there are different groups. Practitioners are a very diverse bunch as well. And I kind of, I kind of sit across three. And part of, part of our work at Transparency International is actually kind of implementing, working with communities and others to implement solutions. We're also advocates sometimes inside the room and outside the room. So it might be from a campaigning perspective where we need support, um, but may also be kind of advising those different groups. Um, as, as Heather said, kind of inside the room with FCDO or the World Bank. And on that, I think what we, we all, there's quite often a common consensus that we know what the problem, there is a problem. These are often wicked problems, and I can't remember how to unpick that acronym, but they're problems to which there is no one necessarily correct solution. There are multiple challenges within that. 
often that needs to be broken down. You need to break that down, particularly in a kind of political landscape where governments, I'd like to say, think on five-year cycles. Governments often don't. They think much more short-term than that even. We need solutions to parts of that problem that can be broken down. Otherwise, you're going into a, into a, into a situation where you're saying this is a huge problem that is too complex. Um, we don't really know what the solutions are, but hey, we can try this, this, and this, and it probably won't work, but um, give us 10 years and we'll come back to you. That gets no no traction. And that's something particularly, I mean, I, as Johanna said, I come from a health sector background, I know very little about corruption, but we know there's a problem and the health sector kind of avoids the issue of corruption in the health sector. We've got the stats there to say it's a big problem, but it's very, very difficult to get traction on it because everybody turns around and says, well, what's the solution here? And people tend to say, well, it's complicated. Yeah, we know it's complicated. Give us some practical steps to break this down. And I think in that as well, there is a need to avoid working in silos engage that, that there's much better engagement um, between the kind of sectors and again from my side I'm talking about the kind of the health sector the, the those working in the health sector for instance or whatever sector you're looking at need to be engaged with those working in the anti-corruption the governance space to engage first in the research but then also in developing those solutions otherwise it becomes all too easy to ignore and particularly if you're using the jargon of one sector or the other people's eyes glaze over um, I'm, people in the health sector won't understand it and vice versa. Second point is about the agenda. Um, and again, the timing of this all is that we're looking all too often, as Heather said, the kind of timings of this, but we want work that sometimes helps feed the agenda and push certain issues forward. Conversely, we also want strategic thinking that will help us kind of set the agenda there. So looking for those kind of long-term pieces that set out the kind of the vision and help further for, forward the agenda. And I think there's a need there to kind of engage, if you're looking at research, with, with practitioners early on to help understand how that your work feeds into, into what they're trying to achieve, be it either in the short term or the long term. Engage with them to understand what their challenges are that they're trying to address and help feed or set that agenda. I haven't kept track of the time at all, I have to admit, but I'll stop there because I think I would like to hear from others as well. Thank you. Great. Well, thank you so much, uh, Jonathan. So, so a number of great points, and uh, I think I counted, I counted seven on my, on my little uh, notepad here of the types of different challenges that practitioners and researchers face in communicating, uh, starting with the different expectations and thoughts. Let me turn it over and see whether out of the audience you have thoughts, whether you have questions that you would like to raise, whether you want to go a level deeper and question or press any of our speakers, uh, or, or whether you have additional perspectives or angles that you would like to introduce to this discussion. Okay, uh, thanks. So the, the point I made in the chat, and I'll just repeat it, is as a, someone who, make, who used to make policy and programs and now makes research, one thing that, that surprised me was that how researchers always imagine that the whole body of research is all broadly interesting and useful, and they show great respect to other researchers, which, as I've joked, is why academic conferences have parallel sessions and run for days. Um, whereas in, in policymaker world, you know, we tend to be much more selective in my experience, and as Heather touched on, um, we operate within political as well as technical and financial parameters. And so... I spent a lot of, of my time basically ignoring or trying to understand what to ignore and what to focus on in terms of the available body of evidence and research. And I think that this is, is vital to understand because sometimes when researchers come to me and say, 
can I tell you about, you know, can I have an hour meeting about my, my work? It's interesting, but not necessarily relevant to, to policy. And uh, I try not to be rude, but I, I try and, and not have that hour-long conversation. The converse is there are some researchers who probably hate me because I'm always chasing them on Twitter by email, demanding meetings, asking meetings, or, or buttonholing them at, at conferences. Because I think that the, the potential application of their research could be huge and have a massive impact. So I regard that as being sort of like a policy entrepreneur in dealing with evidence. And I think um, getting into the minds of, of, of people that I, um, I behave like maybe is, is important in terms of bridging this divide. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Appreciate that. No, I just want to comment that Heather made me laugh because as a former journalist, wannabe academic, timing is something that I'm still struggling and it's so different. But I'd like to make a question, actually. I've been thinking a lot about more contentious actions against corruption, naming, shaming, just to mention one, and more collaborative initiatives. And I'd, li I'd love to hear from uh, the presenters if one single group, one single organization can do both, all these kind of they are incompatible. You cannot name and shame at the same time that you uh, extend your hand and say, let's work together. That's my point. Great, thank you. And in some ways, that is an interesting segue back to uh, Jonathan's point about, about making a link between, between a vision of, of where to get with research um, and linking that also into the name and shame arena. But, but let's collect a few more um, insights or, or thoughts and afterwards, we'll turn it back over to the panelists. Hi. So I had a question regarding what Heather was talking about, about the political agendas that these different policy organizations have. And when and, and that's what I was thinking. Normally, academics, well, most academics, have much more freedom relative to policymakers. Policymakers have to abide by certain agendas of their organizations. But Heather and Leslie, both of you, uh, this is directed at you. How do you operate in the space when you get seconded to these organizations? Because all of a sudden, you've gone from environments where you're used to extreme freedom for exploring ideas, etc., and now you're going to be driven by the agendas that the organizations that are, well, hiring you for a while. And, and it makes me wonder, are you then – walking into that space of becoming flexions, as Janine Weddell would put it. Great, thank you. Hi, thank you for the, uh, like the short uh, presentation so far. Um, I have, I think, a general question that's still targeted specifically to maybe uh, those of us that are junior researchers, um, in that what advice would you give junior researchers who are maybe at the point of still developing their niche topic of research? Um, in relation to these uh, discussions with policymakers as well, like what should we be looking towards? Great, appreciate that. And a clear link back to Leslie's comments and also, also Heather's. Thanks very much and uh, really interesting comments. And I think one of the things that comes through is, is the need to appreciate the different pressures that, and different incentives, I guess, that drive how academics function and how people in the, the more policy-oriented world work. But I guess the question I'd like to ask is, how do you guard against the risk of simply more accessible work or better presentation of work overly influencing policy outcomes, even if that work isn't actually 
terribly good. And I'm thinking of examples in my mind, but it's probably better if I don't actually say who I have in mind. <laughs> but that, that there is a real possibility that simply because some academics are better at expressing what they're working on, but they may not actually be right in what they're saying, but it gets picked up because it, it, it looks easy to follow or is more accessible. Whose responsibility is it to address that risk? Great, good, good question. And it goes back to this point that Heather made about uh, relevance and you're extending that point to ask whose job is it, whose responsibility to determine that relevance and how. And thank you. So what I would like to hear a bit more about, it's not exactly a question, but I'd just like to hear a bit more about also the dangers of, or the risks involved in bringing those fields together. You know, academia and policy uh, making are separate and they follow different logics. And part of that is because there's a reason why academia doesn't want to be directly involved in policymaking and, and vice versa. So I, I'm curious to hear a bit more on what are perhaps some of the pitfalls that should be avoided in, in you know, so that we don't fall into an easy narrative that the more interaction, the better, per se. You know, uh, I, I imagine there are some downsides to that uh, approximation. Great. Thank you so much. So I, I see one last hand up, and I'll, I'll this is the last uh, contribution that we'll accept in this round before now handing it back to Heather, Leslie, and Jonathan for, for comments. Uh, yeah, just a very quick question. I was wondering if you could reflect upon um, what appears to be maybe the dominance of uh, the global north academic institutions in the space. One of the issues we've had on our project recently is trying to find academics, you know, from um, the global south, um, and we're sort of being challenged with a credibility gap about trying to find good academics and researchers. There are lots out there, but maybe not publishing in as wide variety of journals. So, uh, yeah, what the panel think about trying to be more inclusive in terms of the type of academics, geographical locations, what are the barriers and whether or not that might um, uh, also help with influencing policymakers, maybe. That, that's a great point. Appreciate that. And something that we have certainly thought about justice law on many different occasions. Um, so a range of challenges, uh, and we've moved partly into solutions in some of your comments, or at least ideas about solutions. But to stick with the topic of challenges for, for, the, for the next few minutes still, Heather, Leslie, Jonathan, do you, do you want to come in and respond to points that you have picked up on and develop those thoughts further? Go any sequence you'd like. Uh, Deirdre, about naming and shaming collaboration. Uh, there's naming and shaming individuals or organizations, and there's naming and shaming phenomena. And I think uh, if you want to um, increase collaboration, I mean, naming and shaming in itself can be just purely negative. Uh, that doesn't necessarily help anybody. Uh, but if you're naming shaming phenomena and saying these are the problems and blah, 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 then you can collaborate. Obviously, with all these things, I could, one could <laughs> elaborate a greater length, but uh, time is not on our side. The question about how do we operate, given we're used to freedom, I don't know. I just find that I can wear different hats. As a person, I'm fairly disciplined anyway. I mean, I said that I've got to get up at quarter past five. I normally have to get up that early. Uh, may need to take my wife to work, actually. She's a nurse. Uh, so I'm used to strict discipline, usually sticking to deadlines and so on and so forth. The, the freedom thing, I just think that when I'm in at university, I'm lucky to have that freedom. And when I'm um, working with practitioners, then I work to their rules. And I, I personally don't find that a problem. I, it actually adds to the richness of the experience. 
I don't want to hog everything, so I don't know if if um, Jonathan and Heather would like to answer some of the other questions. I've I've got answers to everything, but I don't want to hog. I don't want to hog everything. Sure, Heather. Yeah, um, you know, going from absolute freedom to maybe less so. And I mean, I, I think I would say it's not necessarily working to their rules. It's kind of thinking about what your role is within what you're doing. And your role as an academic is often to provide independent advice, no matter where you are. But I would say my, my experience of being seconded into a government department is probably slightly different than most in that um, I'm not staff. I'm not a civil, I am staff. I'm not a civil servant. So I don't have to be neutral. I don't have any of those roles. But if you want to be influential, if you actually want people to listen to you and what you have to say, then you have to find a way to be critical in a way that's respectful even if you really, really don't agree with some of the people that you're, you're speaking to. And that's not just sort of, in, and that's in any kind of environment, really. Nobody's going to listen to you if you're disrespectful. So if your purpose is to be confrontational because you, you have to be to achieve your objective, then that's very different to being confrontational because you're just being a bit of a, bit of a jerk. And I think that, that that's something that you learn uh, over time. I, I think that you know anybody who knows me well can imagine that, even though I might be slightly quiet about things on Twitter, for example, that I am in no way quiet behind the scenes, and you wouldn't expect that um, in a sense. Um, and I have actually been introduced you know, I was I did a brown bag lunch at the World Bank, and I was introduced as somebody who's not a bit of a jerk. And I thought that that was actually a pretty big indictment of sort of academic engagement in our field. That that was that was a way to get people around the the table. I think you know my secondment ends at the end of September. I will probably be more actively critical of some political things on Twitter than before. But ultimately, if it's not related to my research, you know, you're, you're going to be respectful. And if you want a masterclass, Google Liz David Barrett's recent Newsnight interviews on governance challenges and corruption challenges within the UK government. So she's someone who does excellent research, including with GIAs. She's very critical and she's often drawn upon for these kind of really tough discussions because she does it in a way that's not sensationalist, um, is balanced, is evidence-based, and so on. And it's an absolute masterclass, I think, to watch watch her doing that. I, I have to say, you know, one of my biggest frustrations, which you know as well as anybody, is that universities put nothing into research communications at all, certainly compared to think tanks. And it is a real frustration because it does mean that, you know, unless you have some kind of institutional space to put your research out there, it is actually really hard. And then it looks rubbish because you don't have the comms and the infographics and so on. But whose responsibility is it really for policymakers drawing on less worthy research? I mean, ultimately, it's nobody's responsibility. Um, you know, you hope that there are knowledge management systems in place to try to search out the best evidence. But there are thousands of things that could go into any piece. And I think the responsibility has to come back to universities. If, they, if you know, universities would like academics to be impactful, then you invest in impact activities and you do it properly um, as well, which then is on governments usually to fund researchers, which is quite hard with corruption research if we're being critical of governments all the time. So yeah, it's a bit of a thing. Um, and then just finally, uh, the, the issue with Global North dominance is just, it's well beyond this space. I mean, it's got to be said. There are 
all kinds of attempts to try to level the playing field, to try to do capacity building, to set up knowledge management platforms and their short term um, and so on. The barriers are absolutely huge. And it's not going to be solved by any single program or funder or organization or so on. And if it's going to come through, it's the sort of thing that really needs high level commitments, including from, I mean, I would say kind of at a UN sort of level, because the barriers to researchers from the global south are huge. So if academics in the global north, you know, are challenged when it comes to competing with think tanks for space, then we are so lucky compared to to researchers in the global south. And I can't, I don't think there's a single simple solution to it, sadly, although there are things you can do in the short term through networking and so on. Great. Well, thank you so much, Heather. John, do you want to come in? Yeah, just briefly, um, I think, first of all, just briefly in comment in response to the question about the kind of the linkages, what I would very much encourage people to do, and I say this is somebody who spent a very long time between my undergrad and master's working, um, probably far too long, but is get out there. If you are interested in understanding the policy space, try and get a secondment, internship, short-term work in organizations. It doesn't have to be the right one, but try and understand the way that these things work, get that practical experience and use that to, to guide your thinking and learning. And, and shape your work. And on the kind of um, the naming and shaming, I think we we do it as an organization. I, and I think this kind of touched on some of the points that Heather and um, raised that you've got to have your kind of comfortable space. And as an organization, institution, but also as an individual, there is value in naming and shaming. Sometimes it can be, it can be counterproductive. People kind of close up we would do it in a in a way that we would try and engage with people first or organizations first run the individuals our companies and try and work with them to present solutions if that doesn't work we might go public on it but try and engage first i would say engagement is generally kind of more productive than just kind of going out hard hitting and and i think on the kind of on the 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 divide between the academic freedom and engaging with policymakers. Again, it's about everybody's got those kind of comfort zones and you've got your barriers. And it can sometimes be slightly, you can flip. And certainly in my work, we kind of flip sometimes from kind of advocating quite hard against or for certain reforms from a multilateral institution on one day to being in the room with them on another to work through it. So there's a balance there. You've all got your own kind of personal boundaries you wouldn't work perhaps with a repressive regime or, or with a tobacco company, for instance. Um, you will know what those are and your institutions have those boundaries as well. Great. So, so we're just about uh, at the right time here to, to move into the, the, this idea to now look at the different challenges that we've heard and, and explore solutions or approaches of how we could overcome those barriers that sometimes stand in between uh, practitioners and researchers communicating more effectively. And, and I want to start off again with, with handing it to our panelists and um, hearing their reflections. And we've gone partly into this. One, one thing that struck me just now is, and, and I think I'm pushing back a bit on both uh, Jonathan and Heather here. While it is true that the responsibility to understand the relevance must be located on either side, practitioners and researchers. I wonder if one easy way to overcome that would be for both of these sides to be just clearer about their objectives and to more clearly pronounce toward each other what they're really interested in. And Transparency International is an interesting example in that respect because the way that chapters or even global initiatives handle the balance between 
pushing back on governments or, or naming uh, and shaming particular things. But at other times, switching 180 degrees and being constructive partners is quite striking. And that happens quite often. But it is a very conscious choice that the TI folks make regularly. So I wonder if, if a consolidated effort by both practitioners and researchers to be just clearer about the objectives that they pursue and the assumptions that they have that underlie their respective work, whether that would be one easy entry point to, to finding uh, ways to overcome communication barriers. So keeping that in mind, let, let's start with Jonathan this time. Jonathan, do you have, do you have thoughts about uh, approaches on how to overcome the barrier between practitioners and researchers? I do. And apologies, I'm thinking about your last point just now. And I think one of the points would be that I think certainly from our side, we as institutions, we need to be better at communicating and engaging from the outset um, and opening up to working with researchers to try and communicate what our long-term aims are. I don't think we always do that. We often come into it quite late in the game saying, hey, we've got this. Often it's attached to funding and then we're kind of saying, okay, we want solutions to this. We need to be engaging much more at the outset and in the long-term, developing long-term partnerships. And I think that on the flip side, I'd say that to, to the research community as well, that you need to understand and be, kind of try and engage with practitioners, policymakers from the outset, try and understand what their issues are um, and what their interests are. It is it is difficult, particularly when you're doing long-term research pieces. And and the and as Heather said, often the kind of the needs are short-term, but there are also kind of there are long-term narratives, um, long-term threads goals etc i mean without kind of going in but for instance sdg 16 something like that try and understand what those are what people are working towards um and then and then kind of try and and, and build that into your research and continue to engage people through it that we want i would be i'm very interested to see kind of preliminary research coming out and discuss it with people that can help you but it also really helps us as well so that if we can see it before it is finally as a published paper that's really useful and it context, completely context dependent as well. In terms, if you're talking about the impact of it as well, it may actually help the impact of it as well. That that if we we would be very happy to work with people, say, okay, hey, here's this piece of research coming out, and we can coordinate that if necessary. Say with kind of policy asks, advocacy asks, or or actually kind of work to implement the solution. And I, I think the other point which I touched on before as well is the kind of cross-sectoral understanding as well. To try, as you said, anti-corruption research is incredibly interdisciplinary. And I come from another sector that's also incredibly interdisciplinary. Try and work with your colleagues in those sectors. Engage with them, even if it's over coffee or going to going to other lectures, et cetera. Try, if you're interested in the sector, try and build, bring them into it. Understand what, what the issues in their sector as well that they're facing are. Because every sector has multiple issues i mean if we talk about the health sector it's kind of whatever maternal mortality infant mortality those are the top issues of the day you've got to be able to link anti-corruption into that if you're to make a kind of a successful policy pitch because that's what that's what the policymakers are interested in there and you are competing in that that incredibly crowded space for attention i think those are my top recommendations i could go on like everybody for a long time but i'd hand over back to you hannes heather leslie who of you wants to go next I'm a bit uh, over-disciplined sometimes, and I've, I've just addressed the two challenges that I set in, in my initial talk. Uh, so I'm, firstly, ways in which academics can make theories of corruption more relevant and more accessible. I personally do think that if you've got something important to say, you should be able to communicate. The way I always put it is you should be able to communicate it clearly to anyone who reads a serious newspaper. 
not the gutter press, but a serious newspaper. And for instance, I've just been um, teaching Borgesian, a Borgesian approach to crime and corruption. And if the students come across all this jargon, doxa and habitus and schemata and so on and so forth. And I think it's part of our job, not just only for students, but also for the practitioners, that if we think that there's something important, then I do actually think there's something important in Bourdieu, we put it in everyday language. Um, and that's very easy to do. Uh, in my opinion, some Paul might disagree with me, but I'm a great believer that you crawl, then you walk, then you run. In other words, if you get the absolute basics of a theory, whether it's rational choice theory or strain theory or um, opportunity theory, social learning theory, all these things, can help us better understand what causes corruption. And in my opinion, you really need to look at those deeper, those deeper explanations, those theories, if you're going to come up with um, longer term and deeper solutions, not superficial solutions that will just deal with the problem here and now. I, I would like to say one quick thing to point about uh, the dangers of interaction. When the World Bank approached me, many years ago about um, wanting me to, to give them some advice or, or my ideas, I should say, on um, corruption in transitions, post-communist transition societies. And I made the point to them as soon as they approached me, well, you know, my, I'm very anti-neoliberalism um, and uh, I'm not prepared to um, uh, compromise my views on that. And they said, no, we know that. And that's precisely why we want you uh, to come up with some alternative interpretations. There were things I suggested which they wouldn't come at. For instance, amnesties in really, really corrupt societies. I, I won't go into how I argued in favour of amnesties and what the conditions were. But suffice to say, they wouldn't come at that. But at least they let me um, expand and expound those ideas. So minimising jargon, simplifying theories, and then building when people have have got the basics of them, uh, I th think it's very important. Cultural theories, gender, I think gender is a very important thing. Uh, and various feminist theories uh, can help explain the apparent differences between men and women, apparent differences between men and women in terms of both their attitudes towards corruption and their engagement in it. The second point about the how corruption studies at universities could be more applied Personally, I always bring in practitioner guest speakers who will give their perspective, which is often very different from my own. And they're usually very happy to do that. It's good for their CV. Secondly, I get my students to do both research essays, which is the academic side, and briefing papers. And I'm very strict on briefing papers on things like simple language, on sticking very strictly to the word limit, and so on. Thing, and, it, and then I correct them on th things like costing, if they haven't put costing, I don't mean in dollar terms, but they need to say uh, the, the advantages of this policy will outweigh the disadvantages. It will save money for the state by reducing the corruption. I, again, I can't go into details. Thirdly, accepting consultancies, and I, I do both for pay. They offer pay. I'm quite happy to accept it as long as I don't have to compromise my own views. And I'll do pro bono. I, in my case, I do a lot more pro bono than a consultancy because I believe in, in the importance of it. 
Um, I probably don't do as many as many of you, Heather, for instance, and that's simply because I get asked a lot to do um, overseas consultancies. And just because the time difference, I'm an old man, it takes me three days to get over jet lag if I have to go to England, for instance. Um, so I don't do so much, although Zoom makes that easier. Uh, and finally, um, things like the, the ways that academics can help with measurement techniques. Again, I know something that Paul has strong views on, but, um, but I've always found Transparency International at least open to criticism and open to trying to improve measures. You know, the way they brought in the bribe bears index in response to criticisms that uh, the, the corruption perceptions index was too much in favour of the global north is the phrase we were using earlier. And then the global corruption barometer, which personally I, I prefer to the corruption perceptions index because it involves experiential questions. These kinds of techniques, and, and that's my five minutes I can tell, okay. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Leslie. Appreciate that. Heather. Yeah, thanks. There's some real um, some real kind of food for thought that I'm, I'm sort, of, sort of on the side here bringing into the solutions that I'd kind of pre-prepared here. I'm not I'm not going to start with thinking about these solutions. I'm not going to start with just, you know, the most obvious thing that would be would be great, which is that if universities actually properly resourced and supported this work, because, you know, we could just keep pushing on that until it until it happens. Um, but I wanted to start with Jonathan's point that he made about the challenges about you know the wanting solutions. Basically, you need a solution for what there is, and there is a fantastic chapter. I'll put something in the link in a book on Lawrence Friedman's work on strategy. So this is an international relations text, and it's written by Sir David Omond, who was a British senior civil servant. He headed GCHQ. The, the cyber intelligence organization. And uh, he was permanent secretary uh, in the home office and so on. And it's, it's called On Academia and Whitehall. And he talks about how what policymakers need um, is they need three things. They need uh, conceptual research, practical research, and research feeding into learning practices. But what they almost always just go for is the practical research. And he sets out really clearly why that's a problem, including how policy and practice both need conceptual research. You know, it's what underpins the practical research and it's what underpins the learning. It's what shifts ways of thinking and, and working. It basically is what sets the agenda as well, but it's also the hardest to break down in terms of policy communication uh, and to do it well. But there are good ways of doing this and it can be learned, but it's a bit like a virtuous circle, which is if you understand how practice works and you understand how learning works, that helps you better communicate the conceptual side as well. And, and I think as, as teachers, we can be better at teaching our students how to do that. I, I do think we can also start to become much clearer as individual academics about our offers. So spelling out really clearly in whatever we're doing, what is important. So what specifically is it going to help people do better or what is it going to stop them doing badly? If there's something, if I think there's a serious, you know, something seriously bad is going to happen if people don't listen to me, I just would say that straight up front, you know, what's unique about your research and what is it that you're going to do beyond that paper? So what's the kind of relationship you're looking to build as well? In doing that, 
this is actually probably a really hard process emotionally, it has to be said. So, you know, sitting in a meeting, hearing someone sum up a whole body of complex evidence into four random unconnected bullet points is a real shock to the system where you're just thinking, you know, I've been in meetings where I thought, I'm, I'm not sure how I can explain this any more simply. But actually, the person that, that I was talking to didn't need that. What he just needed were some things that he could take to somebody else more senior as, as illustrations. And that, that, I think, is really hard uh, to take on board. But ultimately, as academics, we need to learn better how to communicate the way other people need, not the way we think they should hear it. And I think that that's quite tough. Um, as an example of that, um, my friend Karen Pfeiffer and I wrote a corruption functionality framework coming out of our research on, on uh, corruption collective action and so on, which we, we published with GI ACE. And with that, I gave it to two of the toughest toughest critics I know who hate basically anything like this. And I kept writing and rewriting bits that were a bit more politically challenging, a bit more technically challenging until they both said, yeah, I'm willing to go with that. And that was probably one of the, the kind of most exciting moments of my, you know, my recent work, I have to say, is getting to that, but it was tough. The next stage for us is going to be to test it as well. So as academics, we also kind of put stuff out there and we don't you know, we're not always able to follow it through to see if it generally does work in practice. The last thing there, too, is I think that as academics, we, we have this kind of myth that policymakers don't read. So if you just keep shrinking things into like smaller numbers of minutes, that that works. But policymakers do read, in my experience, but they read what they have to for the work that they're doing right at that moment, or they read what they're really interested in as well. Um, and then how they read hot desking. So we do webinars a lot like this. If you're sitting at a hot desk, you have to have headphones on and things like that. Or they, you know, back in the day, they would write, read on public transportation. So I think the more we, we know about what happens with our work, the better as well. I think on the other side as well, this point about kind of thinking about the objectives is a really good point that Hannah's asked us about. When I first started at DFID, one of the first things Peter asked me to write was a note on how academic incentives shape what we do. Um, because policymakers also have a sense for how academic incentives, they've heard of publish, publish or perish, but they don't really know. Um, and then the following one was to try to how to make sense of people's publishing strategies so that they could better help work, you know, better work with academics and work with their incentives. I think beyond the formal incentives, being really clear on what the informal incentives are is important. So for me individually, I, you know, I, I do my research because I want to try to make things better. Um, and I want to know that what I've done is useful and appreciated, especially given you have limited time. You know, uh, I participated in some consultation around the recent integrated review process in the UK. The cabinet office sent a letter. You know, it's a form letter, but it was still nice to receive. You know, email researchers to let them know why their work was useful that's fantastic. If it wasn't useful, give them a call and gently explain. So something like that will guarantee that you're building that relationship. And I have to say one of the privileges of being quite senior is that I can pick and choose what I engage in. And nothing is more likely to make me delete an email from a policy person than having been engaged with in the past and then having no follow-on, no sense for what it was useful for, no acknowledgement or thanks or anything like that. Um, so why, why I would do that again, I'm not sure. I think for academics, you know, really for, for us to kind of be, you know, to watch, to listen and to try to learn a bit more about your context, 
thinking about being trustworthy as well. If you really want to understand the politics, you have to be trustworthy in, in that sense. And, you know, you know, you've really moved into that space if people tell you something and they don't start the sentence with, this is off the record, or this is under Chatham House rule, right? That that's, that's usually a good thing. Communities like the Thinking, Working, Politically Community or Practice or so on that provide safe spaces are really useful, but they're hard to get into. Um, a lot of this needs is understanding how to build networks, how to build those relationships and so on. And this comes back, I think, to the point, I, I don't think, certainly for early career researchers, that's a bit of a black box that could be unpacked more. And I'm going to make an offer now for I should get back in touch with me. I do a session in Birmingham about building networks and relationships, and I'm happy to do it for the network as well. So I think for senior academics, we need to be better at sharing that experience um, and also bringing people in to help them build those networks themselves. Somebody, Leslie, you pointed about gender. I think for women, networking and relationship building can be really tough. If you're a working class woman or a woman of color, then wow, it is actually really tough to do that, especially in if you're working in organizations where most of the senior decision makers are often still white men, then that can be challenging. So as a woman from a working class background, I'm not going to call myself working class as a professor, but but from a background, there are two things I've accepted over the years. So one is that there's just some people who won't take someone like me seriously, and I have to choose whether it's worth my time to put the energy into that. And the second is to be honest about who I am and what I bring um, and to not pretend to be somebody else as well. I'm not a really formal person. What you see is what you get, and I, I don't change that with different groups in a sense. But talking about academics, so just a couple final points. I mean, one thing is that policymakers need to find better ways to be honest about those challenges and to facilitate learning. And I don't think we can underestimate how difficult that is, especially if you're in a government department, how hard it is to do that. Because, you know, you're talking about things, you know, honesty could sometimes cost people their jobs if you're too honest. But there needs to be better ways to do that. And on that, I think politicians also need to be looped in better. So really thinking about finding champions who will make the case for better engagement and professional societies could be really useful here for, for trying to help to do that as well. Um, but ultimately, it's going to need that. So I think that's it for me. Um, Heather, thank you so much. Again, there's so much, so many aspects and elements that you've just uh, raised and put on the table. We, we will have a hard time to unfortunately a hard time to go all through all of that uh, in the last 15 minutes that we have. But I want to give a chance for others in the audience to come in and either comment or raise questions or bring in their perspectives as well. Yeah, just jumping in here um, with something that is not a typical way of sharing anti-corruption initiatives and research. Essentially, there is a there's a group that's part of um, our greater network at OpenGovHub called Accountability Lab, and they do things very differently, um, meaning that instead of naming and shaming, they actually name and fame, and they have a program called Integrity Icon throughout uh, many different countries. I'll drop that in the chat in a moment, but just like an alternative way of basically highlighting the public servants who are honest and have integrity um, and shining a light on them instead of just the corrupt officials that oftentimes uh, we pay attention to. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Johannes. Uh, my question uh, builds on the discussion about networking and what uh, Jonathan also stated about interdisciplinarity, even looking around this room now, you see 
experts from different fields. And the question is very straightforward, but quite complex, probably. We've been uh, dealing with it for the past probably more than six or seven years under this initiative. What recommendations would you give to improve interdisciplinarity, the networking between the different disciplines, not only between policymakers and academia, but even within the same university, you have these faculty islands in which people would be dealing with similar issues, researching on similar aspects, but there is a simple lack of uh, maybe communication and understanding between uh, uh, those individuals in order to um, uh, collaborate on various research. So basically, what can be done to improve interdisciplinarity, especially when it comes down to anti-corruption research? Great, appreciate that perspective. Thank you. My question was mostly directed to Jonathan, who mentioned that he himself, and I assume TA Health as well, uh, is looking for empirical work more so than theoretical frameworks. And I was wondering, given COVID and the fact that due to COVID, the focus and the policy focus has been shifting constantly and data is not really catching up with that. It's very often the fact that if you're using data that's been collected prior to some whatever shock that's happened somewhere, it's essentially not going to give you any information. And I was wondering what his thoughts are about this and how academics can approach this. Thank you. But let's keep that in mind and, and return to this in a few minutes. Thanks, um, thanks everyone, just the presenters for your, your comments and, and researchers for your feedback. Just wanted to share kind of a practitioner perspective, uh, just to kind of plus up on the point on kind of clearly delineating objectives, right, and purposes. It's when I'm reading papers, I'm not sort of clear on, on whether um, it's really meant for a practitioner audience, and I'm not sure that's something that, that an academic can really do, given sort of the, the incentive structure and, and, and the way papers work generally, but, you know, to the extent that, that you could share essentially in a paper whether, whether there is, are, are takeaways for practitioners and then have a separate section, kind of an action, action section, um, whatnot, and I've seen examples of that, but that's just something to sort of think about, and, and the ones that I've seen have been really helpful to be able to sort of dig into the, some of the academic, more, more academic content, um, more theoretical work or, you know, and then, and then think about the, the takeaways. Um, so that's just a, a quick note. And then I had a question really for, for the, the group of researchers. I'm not sure we could really do this in the chat. So maybe it's just for, for Heather and, and Leslie with your more uh, researcher hat on to reflect on, but just, you know, about sort of the, the process of, of putting together research and whether there's a step in the process where, where researchers really think about this question of, okay, what, what, what is the purpose for for practitioners? Is there really is there really that angle, and then and then how to sort of structure the research um, and the process around that? Um, you know, and then I think for us um, as a practitioner, it's it's helpful to know where where we can then engage in that process, how we can be helpful, what questions we can answer. Um, and and just from my own perspective, um, I'll, I'll share a, a blog uh, later that. Um, that has my email information, but but from my own perspective, you know, I'm happy to to, to chat where it's helpful wherever in the process to to help inform it um, where where helpful. Thanks, everyone. Great, thank you. I have a I have a few more people on the list just to say, and perhaps that's an obvious caveat. Uh, obviously, there are research outputs, there are research questions that are valid in and by themselves without needing to have this sort of the so what for 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 policy implications. Completely agree. But, yep. As you point out, if there is an expectation by researchers that their research should be relevant, then it would be so good to really upfront understand and delineate what that is and how it might fit and to put some time into exploring that. So, so but yes, fully, fully agreed with all that. 
Yes, and I'm actually going to piggyback a lot on what does because I had a lot of the same thoughts that you did. So really enjoyed listening to your thoughts. And I also come at this from a practitioner perspective. Um, so I work in corporate compliance department. And so I wanted to wear, share a couple of thoughts that I have. Um, and it kind of goes along the lines of what Heather was talking about with the, um, the requirements that are put on individuals in academia, where we have similar requirements. So we have a whole process that we need to roll out globally, for example. So my time looking into research is really short and key. So I need to be able to identify really quickly what research can be practical and helpful for me and how can it be so? And I would say two things here. One is, you know, working in a corporate environment, I don't have access to all the fabulous tools that you have at universities. I don't get those articles. So really in order to meet some of this group, you have to go into, I think, almost the popular press and synthesize, I think going along the lines of what Paul was saying, synthesize some of this information. And then you can go and you can try to identify the, the resources and the primary resources later on but something to catch you, catch, you know, so you almost have your audience that is really towards your academic community. Also with in mind that the type of articles and the information, you know, that needs to be, in order to be accepted into an academic article, there's certain requirements that are going to come into place, which is a little bit different than what I'm looking for from a practitioner point of view. So I think to the extent you can have both and you have kind of a long version and a short version, these are ways in which you can reach a larger community with your research. Um, I used to work years and years ago for a professor who did exactly that. And so we would have very much an academic style article and then we'd have articles that we would be working on with him going out to the popular press um, with newspapers and things like that, just to, to try to get the ideas out there. And, and it, I think in some ways works. So um, that was uh, just one idea that I had that I wanted to share. Thanks. Thank you so much. And I can see that there is additional comments in the chat as well. Let me, having an eye, an eye on the clock, we have about five more minutes and we'll close out right at 9.30 a.m. DC time. Hi, Johannes. Thanks for that. And mine was just a quick question. The first one was in relation to the whole movement towards uh, decolonization. I was wondering, in terms of policy and practice, from a field perspective, um, what are the implications of that sort of discussion, uh, that sort of discourse in the context of policy and practice? From where we sort of look at it, you know, you have the academics come and they make proposals, they make policy proposals. And in terms of implementation, there's failure and the implementation failure is put down to capacity and both networks then try to address the problem with people coming up with policy proposals and more academic papers and then the you know state actors failing to implement properly and the cycle continues so does de decolonization say anything about that and i'm particularly interested in relation to social norms as well in particular has there been any connection any implications arising out of the work a lot of interesting, fantastic work that you've done on social norms. Uh, has, has there been any sort of connection, comment made on the whole de decolonization debate and how it relates to your very, very interesting research on social norms? Thank you. Yeah, and I appreciate that strand of thought very much. Um, again, something we should come back to, but I'll, I'll, give the, I'll give the floor to her just a minute. 
Yeah, thanks everyone. I'll um, be very brief since I get the last question. Let me also say thank you to everybody for this very inspiring insights throughout. Um, my question was a little bit in a similar direction though, because I've been wondering, listening to you all, there seems to be a big focus on academics producing as a, as a service or sort of just from their own perspective, producing something for policy. But I'm really wondering how can we then think of producing something together? So how can we think of actually writing something together as academics and practitioners, which would hopefully, if done right, get rid of these challenges of who is it done for and uh, why do you formulate it that way and why do you formulate it another way and what are the implications there? But I'm really wondering what sort of advice you would have or what insights you would have on really working together from the onset instead of just working together one side provides something for the other side how can that be done in the future thanks to everyone great thank you so much so so we have about two more minutes time even if we run over two or three minutes i hope that there i think there's a break in the program so so let, let's go two or three minutes over the time if that's okay with everyone uh, I want to give it back to Jonathan, to Leslie and Heather to perhaps provide us with some concluding thoughts or remarks based on the different uh, reflections that you've all provided throughout. Jonathan. Thanks, Johannes. First of all, it's been a really interesting session. And I think I think kind of one of the key things kind of from this discussion that strikes me is kind of what I'd like to say is don't be afraid to reach out to people. It's not easy. But I think I think there is willingness on both sides. We are interested. And, and also from my side, sometimes I feel like I'm going to look stupid going to an academic asking these questions we don't know. There's a lot of things we don't know on both sides of this, whether you're an act, academic or practitioner. Reach out to people, try reaching out. As Heather said, there'll be some doors that don't open. Ignore them and try and make those linkages that you, you can do. And then encourage people really to also do that, um, somebody mentioned, within, within those disciplines as well, within your university. Try and break that down as well try um, and very happy to kind of look at how we can co-author as well or others in the kind of civil society space we're keen to work with you to unpick your ideas from your research to put them into policy recommendations blogs etc so keep talking great thank you leslie yeah i agree with pretty much everything jonathan just said um links within the university in my own university uh, i was asked to start some interdisciplinary group and what I did, I just went through the research interests uh, right across the university and got a group of, I was amazed, we got about 22 people who, who had some sort of interest in it. Uh, one point talks about political capacity. Of course, political capacity has to be linked with political will. And the uh, public expenditure tracking surveys that were done by the World Bank in the, back in the 1990s and early 2000s. And... In terms of uh, post-colonial, it was interesting. Uganda, that worked really, really well because the, the political elite was committed to it, uh, whereas in Tanzania, it hardly worked at all because the political elite had very little interest in it. So that's a sort of concrete example of where if you haven't got the political will at the top, all these other connections can come to almost to naught. I, I very much like point about uh, co-authoring and give me some ideas about who I should approach as a practitioner to, to work on, on the, exactly in the lines they laid out. I think that was an excellent suggestion. Thanks. Great. Thank you so much. And great segue to Heather. 
Hi, um, I'm just going to pick up a couple of points on co-production and about research in general. But on co-production, I mean, in an ideal world, this would be this would happen all the time, and it's great to see the, the co-creation things coming up. Uh, Peter Evans has this great phrase called, you know, nose to tail design of research. So engaging with policy and practitioners from the beginning and straight through the end, and so on. And that's a great way to do it. In terms of producing research together, that's a lot more challenging depending on who you're talking to. So civil servants will often have to get permission to publish. Peter is one of my favorite co-authors. Almost none of it you're ever going to read, or you'll see in just my name because it's easy easier to do that way. Or you have to be willing as an academic, and this comes back to the point made about freedom, to not mind if your work gets edited, um, because if you're co-producing with an organization, they'll have, so you, you just have to accept that. And that, I think, segues to the last point I wanted to make is that really not all researchers actually need to communicate with policy and practice. I mean, you can do research for researchers' own sake. You don't have to do any of this unless your funder requires you to do it. So I would say no matter what, you know, really think about your values. I think Peter put something there about kind of values, you know, you know, mission-driven bureaucrats, the Dan Honigs, but think about our values as researchers, why you would want to do this. What is your why? Because that helps you to really think clearly about what compromises you're willing to make. So what compromises in terms of who you talk to, the language that you use, the time that you set aside for all of that. Um, if you don't have a good why, um, other than the funder made me do it, or I need it for my promotion case or whatever, you're never going to do this and, and learn how to do it well. So if you, if you step back and think about it, if actually you don't want to do this, what you want to do is actually you're an activist and you want to focus on that, or you'd rather be you know much more of a theoretical academic and stay away from policy, then by all means. But if you're going to learn to communicate, knowing why you're doing it is absolutely fundamental. So we'll leave it there. Very many thanks, Heather. Um, I won't try to summarize uh, all the different contributions that were made here, but what I will say is that there were clear clusters appearing throughout the different comments. And we'll go back and we'll try to, at the very least, uh, put these thoughts together and formulate a block. Maybe there is even a chance to, to cut this and see whether we can you know, condense this into a shorter video, something along those lines, and then we'll play it back. So we'll follow up on these items over the next few days. Thank you again for all your contributions from the audience. Very much appreciate your active participation and thinking along and questioning things and putting things on the table. But also, obviously, to Leslie, to Jonathan, and to Heather for your time and uh, insights this morning. Thank you all very much. Thanks for listening to today's special episode of Kickback. If you want to learn more about this year's ICRN Forum, check out the link in the show notes. On the website of the ICRN, you can also find links to the previous fora in Amsterdam, Paris, Gothenburg, and Kiev. Also make sure to check out the work of our panelists, Heather, Leslie, and Jonathan, and Global Integrity. As we said in the beginning, we're going to take a short summer break, and we'll be back in the beginning of September. If you want to support us in the meantime, please write us a review on your favorite podcast platform, follow us on Twitter under at kickbackgap, or if you can spare a few bucks, become a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash kickbackpodcast. Everything we receive goes directly back into the podcast. Kickback is a joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. It is made possible by Matthew Stevenson, Jonathan Kleinpass, Christopher Starke, and me, Niels Kubis. The music you heard in the beginning is by Kai Han Golkar. 
that's it for today. We look forward to meeting you back here on this podcast feed in the beginning of September. <music>